But you guys ever had times in your life where you kind of felt out of control? Uh, I've definitely had a lot of moments where I felt out of control. Um, one was there was this girl I had a huge crush on back when I went to Calvary, the school here. Um, I just thought she was adorable. I thought she was amazing. Um, I liked her for way too long, finally gave up on it. But I remember there was this moment, um, you know, she had been dating all of these guys who were kind of like bad boys, you know, like just skaters and surfers. And not that you guys are bad for those of you guys who skate and surf, but they were, you know, kind of rebels on, their, on the edge, you know. And I was the pastor's kid, um, you know, just super, you know, nice and friendly and just not dangerous at all. Some of you ladies know what I'm talking about, like guys who are nice, but like there's just no danger to them, you know? They just smell like air freshener. That, that was me. I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, though, I remember um, there was this time where I worked up the courage to ask this girl out, and I was sitting behind her. We were in the school play, and the play was over, and everyone was all excited, and, and I was sitting behind her, and as I'm leaning over to like ask her, like, hey, do you want to go out with me? And I'm like in fifth grade, so I have no business going out with a girl anyway, but for some reason, I thought it would be a good idea. I'm leaning over, and right as I'm leaning over, this skater guy swooped in and was like, hey, let's date, and she was like, sweet, and I just felt so out of control in that moment. Um, there was another time in my adult life which was more serious, I got this disease that only babies are supposed to get. I can't remember the name of it, but like literally only infants are supposed to get this disease. Basically, my white blood cells shut down, and so my body wasn't fighting off diseases. And so I got very, very sick, and I remember it got so bad, and the doctors had no idea what to do, and they were trying to figure it out, and it got to the point where I'm sitting in this hospital room, and they're giving me what's called a spinal tap, which is where they shove this giant needle into your spine and, and they, they subtract, like, spinal fluid from you. And it was literally, like, just thinking about it gives me the heebie-jeebies. I felt so out of control in that moment. And finally, like, another time I can think of um, just talking to my wife, Brooklyn, about how when she was young and her parents got a divorce at a young age, how it just made her feel so out of control. And, and today's message, today's title, no matter where you're at, you need to know that Jesus is in control. That's what we're studying today. Jesus is in control. So let's look at the story. In John chapter 18, we're gonna show our video that we do. And this video, for those of you guys who are new, it goes word through word through the scripture. So if you open up your Bible to John chapter 18 and start in verse one, you can read along with us. Um, so we're gonna look at the story of Jesus. And these are the last moments of Jesus before his death he is with his disciples. He is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Judas, the traitor, one of his closest friends, has brought an army of people against him to capture him and put him in jail. So that's, that's where we're starting is Jesus' arrest in John chapter 18. So um, we're going to hit the video and uh, we're going to go ahead and watch it. After Jesus had said this prayer, he left with his disciples and went across Kidron Brook. There was a garden in that place, and Jesus and his disciples went in. Judas, the traitor, knew where it was because many times Jesus had met there with his disciples. So Judas went to the garden, taking with him a group of Roman soldiers, 
and some temple guards sent by the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were armed and carried lanterns and torches. Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him. So he stepped forward and asked them, Who is it you're looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. Judas the traitor was standing there with them when Jesus said to them, I am he. They moved back and fell to the ground. Again, Jesus asked them, Who is it you are looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I have already told you that I am he. If then you are looking for me, let these others go. He said this so that what he had said might come true. Father, I have not lost even one of those you gave me. Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave, cutting off his right ear. Put your sword back in its place. Do you think that I will not drink the cup of suffering which my father has given me? Then the Roman soldiers, with their commanding officer and the Jewish guards, arrested Jesus, tied him up, and took him first to Annas. He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jewish authorities that it was better that one man should die for all the people. Right. So, that's John chapter 18, the first part of it. It's pretty intense. We see Jesus getting arrested, and things get really intense really quick. The disciples start pulling out swords. Peter's cutting off people's ears. It's just a mess of a situation, and it's one of those situations where if you're following Jesus, it feels like everything is falling apart, and today I want to talk about that, how in our life, at different times when it seems like everything's falling apart, and I don't know where you're at today. Like, some of you guys, things might be going great. For some of you guys, things might be going terrible. Wherever you're at today, whether it's good, terrible, or somewhere in between, we all face situations in our life where it feels like things are falling apart at, at times. And today, I just want to look, I just want to give you guys a glimpse at how much Jesus is in control. So it says in the scriptures, in John chapter 18, verse 3, it says that there's this crowd that comes against Jesus. Now, who's in this crowd? Well, it says a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests of the Pharisees. What's a detachment? That's a word that we don't normally use. How many soldiers were in it? A detachment is actually, it's Latin for one-tenth of a Roman legion. So what's a Roman legion? Well, it's 6,000 soldiers. So it's one-tenth of 6,000 soldiers, which is 600 Roman soldiers. Now, in the video, it didn't seem like it was that many, but in the scriptures, if we, if we interpret this literally, it's 600 men coming against Jesus. That, that's intense. 
Not only 600 soldiers armed to the teeth with swords and shields and spears, we have the chief priests and the Pharisees coming against him. This is an intense moment. Not only is it the government, not only is it the police, but it's the religious leaders, and they show up and they're just staring down Jesus. Like, for the disciples of Jesus, this is like the most terrible moment they've ever faced because Going along with Jesus, preaching the gospel with him, healing people, they'd always faced the Pharisees, and the Pharisees had always shown up and, and kind of said, you shouldn't be preaching this, you shouldn't be doing this, and they had kind of thrown out their words, but this is the first time they've ever really actually faced soldiers with swords. If I was a disciple of Jesus in that moment in the garden, I would be thinking, I'm going to die. I am going to be taken out. This is terrible. What's amazing about this is it tells us that God's power in his word knocks these soldiers on their feet. Think of it. Jesus is standing there and 600 soldiers show up and they say, Who, like, where is Jesus? Where is he? And Jesus turns and he says, I am he. And just the force of his voice. I don't know how that worked. Like, it, it wasn't that he just took a big breath like the big bad wolf and like bloated out and they fell over. It was literally the power of God. Think of it this way. The God who spoke and said, I am he, is the same God, Yahweh, who said, I am. It's the same God who, when he spoke a word, just one word, he spoke the word, let there be light. It, it created the world. It, it, it spoke life and light into the universe. That voice, that power is so amazing. And so Jesus says, I am he, and it knocks these soldiers on his feet. Jesus is not afraid. He is God. He said he was God, and he is. You know, in my life, I think back to those times um, when I felt out of control. Like, for instance, like I said, there was that girl that I really, really, really liked, and for years I was hoping, you know, maybe she's the one for me. Maybe she's for me. Maybe some of you guys are in that position. Maybe there's that one guy or that one girl where just for years you've been like, man, if only they'd notice me. If only, but they don't, and so you feel super depressed about it and just super bummed, and maybe like me, you've shed a few little tears about it, or maybe a lot of tears. I did, absolutely, when I was younger, but you know what? God was in control because that girl was a really nice person, but in the end, we ended up not having anything in common. And just when I was bummed about, you know, thinking she's never going to be interested in with me and these other girls that I like, they're never going to be interested in me, when I finally said, God, you're in control, and I surrendered that part of my life to him, and I said, God, I'm not going to worry about that anymore. You're in control. That's actually when I met my wife, Brooklyn. And when I met her, she was so much better for me than any other girl I'd ever met. It was almost instantaneously. It's just the Lord was speaking to me, and he was like, this is why you should have waited. This is why you shouldn't have obsessed over those other girls and just been so bummed when they didn't receive your affections to get so down when they wouldn't go to the dance with you. If you would have just trusted me, you wouldn't have had to go through all that heartbreak because you would have kept your eyes on me. And as you looked at me, I would lead you to this amazing person. And my wife, Brooklyn, is literally my favorite person in the world. She's so sweet. She's so amazing. It is like a gift to just every day be living in a house with her. It is fantastic. It, it's, it's amazing. I, marriage is great, guys. Get married one day. Um, spinal tap right? I felt out of control when they were shoving that spinal needle into me. You know what? God was in control 
After that experience, which was one of the most painful experiences in my life, I went to my family doctor, and he pulled out this giant, dusty textbook and flipped through it, and he said, oh, yeah, you've got this, and only babies get it, but for some reason, you got it. That's weird. Here's some medicine, and it all worked out. God was in control. I think of my wife, Brooklyn, going through her parents' divorce, and, you know, we talked about it, and and we realized, you know, even through that, even through the sin of divorce, God was in control. Her parents are both doing fantastic now. Um, they both remarried, and, and um, you know, we were thinking about it, and we were like, man, if none of that would have happened, I wonder if Brooklyn and I would even have met, because just the, the, uh, the, the, um, the circumstances behind it about how she moved to Maine from Oklahoma to Maine and then went to Bible college in England, you know, obviously God doesn't like divorce, but when a family goes through divorce, that's not the end for them. There's still hope. Brooklyn's parents are doing well, and things are okay, and they're following the Lord, and it's fantastic to see. God is always in control no matter what you're going through. And that's something that in this experience that we see Jesus going through, I'm sure Jesus had to remember that God was in control. And I know that's strange to say because he's God, but think about everything Jesus was going through. Remember, Jesus had a human side. And so Judas shows up, this guy who's been traveling with Jesus for three years, one of his closest friends, and he shows up and he gives him a kiss, which might sound kind of weird by today's standards. Like, I don't know if any of you dudes like go up to your guy friends and give him a kiss on the cheek. If you do, that's weird, you should stop. But back then, it was this greeting, it was this custom that the Jews had, and it was a sign of respect. So think of that, it's, it's kind of like Judas gives Jesus this backhanded compliment. It's this sign that's supposed to be of respect. He goes up and gives him a kiss, and he says, teacher, welcome, but really, it's a slap in the face because who's coming behind Jesus? These soldiers coming to arrest Jesus. Look at verse seven. In verse seven, they ask him again, who is it you want? Or Jesus says, who is it that you want? And Jesus replies, uh, or they reply, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happens so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one that you have given me. In this, we see Jesus is in control. He's protecting his disciples. He loves his disciples. Jesus doesn't want them to have to be crucified like he is. Jesus doesn't want them to have to go to the cross. He wants them to go free. He loves his disciples, and so he lays down his own life to fulfill these words that he would not lose one of them. Jesus is always in control. In this entire situation, remember, the soldiers show up. It's not like Jesus is like, oh, no, what am I going to do? No, he speaks a word, and the soldiers fall down to the ground. He lets the, his disciples go free. Jesus has a handle on this situation. And it's funny, though, because even though Jesus has a handle on it, just like we do, Jesus' own disciples try to take matters into their own hands. Um, there's a verse. Okay, so right now we're in the Gospel of John, right? Well, if you go all over the scriptures, you'll see um, that there are four other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four gospels. And it's kind of like, I've heard this illustration my whole life, so I'll use it because it's a good one. Um, If there's a car wreck that happens across the street and one person sees it, they're only gonna really give you the facts from one angle, but if four people saw that car wreck and they're all standing on different sides of the street, they'll all be able to give you different perspectives. So we're going to look over at the Gospel of Luke as Luke tells this story, and he gives us some more details that John did not put in his Gospel. 
So these are the disciples trying to put the matters into their own hands. In Luke twenty two forty nine, 49, and I, I, I use the King James Version because it's hilarious. Um, they say, when they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? Shall we smite with the sword, Lord? I love the word smite. It means basically, should we stab them, Lord, is what they said. Um, in this story, if you look back in Luke, you'll see that the disciples actually had two swords on them. It was actually more like two little daggers. So they're like, Jesus, you're about to be arrested. Should we smite with the sword? Should we strike with the sword? And then someone goes a little bit further. It's Peter. Um, and this, this is a great picture. Poor guy uh, down there. So um, we see um, Peter attacking In verse 10, um, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear, and the servant's name was Malchus. The next thing I want us to look at is that Jesus is in control even when I mess up. Even when you mess up, Jesus is in control. Now, Peter is foolish here because Jesus is obviously in control, like we've seen. The soldiers show up, it's 600 men, it's one-tenth of a Roman legion. And Jesus says, I am he, and 600 men fall down onto the ground. So obviously, Peter has this situation under control. Um, How many of you guys saw the movie Sully? Anybody? I just saw this movie Sully recently. It's about like the captain, the plane captain who landed the plane as it was crashing This isn't a spoiler because this is like a historical thing that happened. So like the movie's based on history. So I'm not spoiling anything if you want to see it. It's a Tom Hanks movie. It's it's so good. So he gets in the plane with his co-pilot. He's a you know just normal airplane pilot, and they start flying. And like literally five minutes into the flight, they hit a flock of birds, and one of like both of the engines just like like worst fear. Anyone afraid of flying? Like anyone afraid of turbulence? When turbulence hit, like do you get scared? I've been on some long flights to like Russia, New Zealand, and like there's points where like turbulence just starts going crazy. This is like my worst nightmare. They hit a flock of birds and the engines go out and the plane is crashing. And they're like, what are we gonna do? And him and the co-pilot are like, we don't know what to do. And they radio in to um, the control tower and the control tower is like, you gotta come back to the airport. But as they start turning back towards the city, they're like about to hit buildings. So the captain, played by Tom Hanks, this guy named Captain Solenberg, He's like, uh, what do I do, what do I do? And he looks and there's the Hudson River and he's like, I'm gonna land on the Hudson River. And everyone's like, don't do that, that's the worst idea. No one has ever landed on the Hudson River. And he's like, it's literally my only option because if I don't do that, I'm gonna hit these buildings. So he goes and he successfully lands the plane on the Hudson River. It's like amazing to watch. It's, it's such a good movie and it's such a good historical thing that happened. And the whole point of the movie is this pilot knew what he was doing, even in the face of crisis, when everyone was like, we're going down, we're going to die, there's no hope. This pilot had so much experience, he'd been flying since he was a teenager, even in that split second moment, he knew what to do and he did it. And you know what? That's how I feel about the Lord. Because even more than Captain Solenberg, who's a human who honestly took a chance and they could have crashed and burned on the Hudson River, God knows everything. 
Every situation you're going through, every little detail of every situation you're facing, God knows those details. They are not a surprise to him. He's not like having to make a split-second decision like, oh, what am I going to do? I did not expect that. No, there's never been a time where something happened in your life and God was like, I didn't see that coming. He did. He has always seen it coming because he is God. Guys, like if you were on a plane with a group of people and there was a guy sitting next to you who was like, hey, I think I want to fly the plane now. Would you be like, that's a great idea? No, you'd be like, please don't. Let the pilot fly the plane. Please let the pilot be in control. You know, some people have said, you know, Jesus is my co-pilot. You know, God is my co-pilot. God should be our pilot. <laughs> we should be the co-pilot. We should be the ones along for the ride. We should be saying that God is in control. I remember um, when I was a kid, actually, no, I was a bit older. Um, how many of you guys know Luke Bernacki? Anybody? Yeah? Such a good guy. So as you guys know, I'm old. Um, not that old, but I'm older than most people here. 27. Ugh, yikes. Like knocking on death's door, one foot in the grave. And um, I remember when I was your guys' age, I would like babysit Luke Bernacki or I think I was in junior high or something. I was babysitting Luke Bernacki, and this, he's like, like two or three years old, like diapers, you know what I mean? Super cute, little blonde tuft of hair, kind of looks how it does now, actually. Um, just squeaky high voice. And I remember I would play video games with Luke, like a good babysitter. Um, and so he was really bad, because he's like three. And like, you know, when you're playing video games, like you don't want to play video games with some three-year-old. You want a challenge, you know? You want to face some kind of challenge. So here's what I would do. I would play these fighting games, and what I would do is I would unplug the controller. I would take away control from him, and I would stick the controller underneath the machine so that to the eyes of a three-year-old with an underdeveloped brain, not that Luke had an underdeveloped brain, but I'm just saying a three-year-old has an underdeveloped brain compared to us, right? Maybe for some of us, but I put the controller underneath so it looked like the wire was going into the machine. So he would sit there, and as I played against the computer, he would think that he was beating me. And it was so cute because anytime that the computer won and he thought, he won, he would look at me and he'd go, I beat, I beat. And I was like, yeah, buddy, you beat. Good job, man. That was Luke. Sometimes we do that to the Lord. Sometimes we like take away control from the Lord and we act like I did with Luke where we kind of pretend like he still has control. Like maybe right now you are completely trying to run your life, but you're like faking God out by like going to church and you know, that way you're like, all right, God, like you're in control of my life. I give it all to you. I'm here on Sunday. That's what you want me to do. But when it comes to the practical day-to-day -day parts of your life, you're not surrendering. You're just doing whatever feels good. You're just going with whatever, whatever the flesh says. You're just literally responding to whatever temptations and just desires of your heart that you want all the while just saying to God, oh, but you're in control. Guys, when we do that, that's not right. We need to let him be in control or else we might cut off someone's ear like Peter. Jesus said to Peter, he said this in Matthew 26, 52, put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. You guys ever heard that? He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. I think this is a great principle for us as Christians. So we've jumped to Matthew. Again, another perspective on what's going on, another angle on this story. Peter draws the sword. He cuts off the ear. John doesn't give us this detail. Right after he cuts off the ear, 
Um, in John, Jesus says, put away your sword because I need to drink this cup the Father has given me. But there's another line that he said in Matthew that Matthew kind of touches on. He says to Peter, listen, put away that sword because he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Here's what he's saying. Peter, remember the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, what do we guys say? Or what do we say? If Jesus is king, what? That changes everything. For those of us who are believers, we have to realize that Jesus is our king, and we follow him, and so Jesus gives us a new way to live. So on the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus says is when he talks about enemies, what does he say? If your enemy stabs you, stab him back. Or even if you think your enemy is going to stab you, you stab them back. You stab them preemptively. We can even do this with our words, right? If someone gossips about you, what do you do? You gossip back. If you think someone is going to double cross you, if one of your friends is going to spread a rumor about you, if one of your friends is gonna try to socially position themselves to put themselves higher and put you down through either gossip or ambition or or talking to the teacher or the coach and trying to throw you under the bus, what do we do? We gather our forces, we gather our friends together, we get people on our side who can defend us. This is what happens to adults as well. With divorces and and friendship breakups, what happens we see is people pick sides and they attack one another. People sue one another. People destroy one another. What does Jesus say about enemies? This is what Jesus says. If someone strikes you on the cheek, give them your other cheek. Turn the other cheek. Like, don't fight back. Well, why? What does Jesus say? He says, love your enemies Pray for those who persecute you. Doesn't that go against everything the modern world tells us to do? Like, does the modern world ever really tell us to love our enemies? No, you destroy your enemies. Think about it. You you see that in every video game, every movie, every book. Lord of the Rings, are they ever like, let's go hug some orcs? No. Mario, I just want to, like, cuddle a Goomba. No, you jump on its head and you kill it before it kills you. That's the way of the world. But Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Why? Well, like, because think about it. If, if, if someone destroys you, if someone kills you, if someone wipes you out, it's a bad thing. If that's all there is to life. If all there is is this life, if this is all you have, then you should protect this life at all costs. But for a Christian, is that what we believe? Is this life all we have? Or is there something more? Is there something greater? You see, for us, we believe in eternal life. We believe that this life is only a mere shadow of the life to come. We believe in the reality of the finalized, realized heaven that Jesus is calling us to. And so as we live this life, If someone attacks us, instead of attacking them back and trying to destroy them, whether it's just destroying them with your words and tearing them down and building yourself up reputation-wise, or whether it's literally killing them before they can kill you, why do we not do that? Because we live for a higher kingdom. And so what we do is we love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us because our goal is actually to try to win our enemies to Christ, to point our enemies to the kingdom so that they can be saved. It's Amazing reality. Um, You know, Martin Luther King Jr., who everyone knows, just this amazing revolutionary of our time. He had this to say. Nonviolence. What's nonviolence? It's what Jesus taught. Not to kill your enemies. Not to strike out against them. Not even to verbally lash out against them. But to love them 
He says nonviolence means avoiding not only external physical violence, but also internal violence of spirit. You not only refuse to shoot a man, but you refuse to hate him. That's where it has to start. In fact, in my own life, um, you know, if someone attacks me, in the adrenaline of the moment, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't own a gun. I do have a knife. Um, I do. (laughs) I don't know how good it's going to come. Um, but if someone attacks me, you know, I can't, I can't tell you what I'm going to do because when adrenaline happens, things go crazy sometimes. I'm not much of a fighter, you know, but here's what I do know. I am trying really hard now to pray before I ever get attacked. And I hope I never do. But if I do, I am actually praying a lot. Lord, prepare my heart for that moment that I might be willing to even lay down my own life for the sake of the person attacking me, that I might even be willing to die if it means telling that person attacking me about Christ. If someone attacks me verbally, if someone comes against me and spreads gossip about me, if someone comes against me and attacks me in that way, I'm praying now, Lord, prepare my heart if that happens, that I can love them and not fight back and not try to gossip against them and not try to tear them down to defend myself. All of these things, I am praying now because, again, in the heat of the moment, whether it's adrenaline that takes over or my flesh, I can't control that moment. But I think in our life, if we spend time beforehand preparing our heart, then when the moment happens, what comes out is going to come out of what's in our heart. So that wasn't in my notes. That's just kind of, I mean, that's, that one's for free. That's a freebie. Whatever, take that for your, whoever needed to hear that today. Maybe right now you need to be preparing your heart for something that's going to happen to you. You need to start by right now praying and saying, God, be in control. You know, our tongues can do a lot of damage. They can do a lot of damage. We're looking at right now, I found a series of images online of people who had hurtful words basically burned into their skin. It's this illustration of people say, what do they say? Uh, Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. You know, our tongues, the, the things that we say to people can destroy people. I had things said to me when I was your guys' age that I still am wounded from. They still hurt. There's still times where I'll be walking down the street and it'll hit me that really mean thing that guy said to me in high school once. And it's like, you know, they never, they never really leave you. Those insults and those things that people say against you. Someone calling someone, hey, you're worthless. You're stupid. You guys have been hurt before. What, is it, what does it say in James 3.8? Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how a great forest, a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members so that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it's set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is unruly evil, full of deadly poison." We need to pray to reflect Jesus, to ask him to enter into our hearts and make, him, make us more like him, to speak words that build people up and not tear people down. Peter's cutting off Malchus's ear because he's not letting God be in control. And you know what? I know none of you guys are ever gonna really cut off someone's ear. You might. I, I knew a guy named Jeremy who uh, bit off part of his friend's ear in the high school locker room during football, I don't know, that was weird. <laughs> I don't know, I just thought of that. 
That was a weird thing. He's like, he's like, dude, I bit off this guy's ear. I was like, that's weird. We, I don't know if we should be friends anymore. Um, anyway, let's move on. Matthew 26, 52. This is what Jesus says next. Again, we're just looking at different gospels, different perspectives. We can get the whole 360 view of this story. This is what Jesus says to Peter after Peter cuts off the guy's ear. Put your sword in its place for all who take the sword perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I can now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Okay, this part's, this part's great. This is, this is so good. Are you guys ready for some like mathematical goodness? I don't like math, but I like this kind of math, biblical math that shows me how in control God is. So this is what Jesus says. Peter, I mean, yeah, there's 600 soldiers. Yes, you're cutting off one guy's ear. You're not doing much damage, Peter. Check this out, Peter. I could, this is Jesus talking. Peter, I could call 12 legions of angels. Now, what is a legion? A Roman legion is 6,000 men. So 12 legions would be 72,000. Jesus is saying, I could summon at will 72,000 angels. Now, what kind of power did angels have? Well, there's a story in Isaiah chapter 37 where it talks about um, at one point, God or Israel's enemies had them just outnumbered. And they're like, what are we gonna do? We're gonna die. Well, God sends an angel, just one angel to help Israel. This is what happened. Isaiah 37, 36. Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed into the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. One angel killed 185,000 soldiers. So 12 legions of angels, which is 72,000 angels, could wipe out 13 billion soldiers. Math, it's great. It's so rad. It's awesome. There's only 600 soldiers present. What does Jesus say? Does he say, angels, come and destroy these men? No. Does he say, Peter, attack, cut off ears? No. Jesus says, I'm in control. Right now, what we're going to do, Peter, is we're going to love our enemies. Yes, we, we could completely wipe them out. I don't, I don't need you, Peter. I don't need you to be in control. I can do it, Peter. But right now, we're going to love our enemies by not stabbing them right now, and we're going to love our enemies by allowing me to go to the cross because Jesus dying on the cross was the ultimate example of God loving his enemies. Jesus is in control. When Peter tries to be in control, he hurts somebody. Guys, when you try to be in control, man, when your mom comes to you and she says something that just sets you off and you try to be in control and you snap back and you say that just really hurtful thing, now your mom's crying. When your little brother or your little sister comes to you and you just feel like you don't have time for them or maybe they're annoying you and you just snap at them, it's like cutting off ears, but it's hurting with our words. When your friends at school are rude to you and you just hit them back, or when someone gossips about you and you gossip back, man, we try to be in control and we cause a mess like Peter. Guys, I wanna challenge you today to allow Jesus to be in control. Here's a great quote from Chip Ingram. He says, God always has and always will look for men and women who say to him, I trust you so much that Jesus, I'm all in. I want your way, not mine. I'm willing to live by faith. Are you willing to live by faith? And realize that Jesus has control over your situation and you don't need to do the work because he is already doing it. Erwin Lutzer says this, you become stronger only when you become weaker. When you surrender your will to God, you discover the resources to do what God 
requires. I'm going to skip over a video I was going to show you guys because we're running out of time. The last thing I want to talk to you guys about is the fact that Jesus is in control even in the midst of tremendous pressure and pain. This is our final point. Jesus is in control even through tremendous pressure and pain. Let's go back to John. Look with me on the screen or in your Bibles. In John 8, 11, this is after Peter chops off the ear. What does Jesus say? There's something very key here that in our last few minutes I don't want you to miss. He says, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Peter, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, what's Jesus talking about here? The cup the Father has given me. Hours before this moment, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was praying. He's on his knees, and he knows what's coming. He knows that he's about to go to the cross. He knows he's about to die. And so the Bible says that he was so stressed out that he developed this rare medical condition where instead of sweating just sweat, he's literally sweating drops of blood. This isn't some weird spiritual thing. I used to read it, and I was like, whoa, that's weird. Like, is it because communion's like the blood of Christ? He's just like sweating drops. No, this was scientific. He was under literally more stress than almost anyone else in history. He, he has, unfortunately, this ability to see into the future being God. He knows the cross is coming, and he knows what the pain is going to be like. He knows that he is about to have his back flesh torn off. He knows that he is about to have a crown of thorns shoved into his head. Imagine thorns shoving into your, through your skin, into your skull. He is about to go through more pain than a God should ever have to go through, that anyone should ever have to go through. And so he's sweating drops of blood. And he says, Father, if there be any other way, can you take this cup from me? Can you take this cup from me? In Mark 14, 35, he says, Father, if there be any other way, can you take this cup from me? What is is Jesus doing here? Is Is he wimping out? Like, why isn't he just, you know, like our movie heroes, like, hey, Give me that cup. Just give it all to me. Just put it on me. Is he wimping out? No. He knows he's about to speak, or he's about to face unspeakable pain. If not physical pain, though, then what, what is it? What was in the cup? I don't think it was just pain in the cup. To illustrate this, imagine this. Imagine you've got, like, you guys know those trophy cups, those big ones? Yeah, some of you guys are like, oh yeah, I know. I've won some, I've got it. So a big old trophy cup. Imagine some of the nastiest stuff. Like just, I'm not even gonna say just nasty stuff. Just imagine, things you don't wanna eat or drink. Just nastiness. Use your imagination, whatever you want, in the cup. Just full to the top. Imagine all the sins that you've committed in your life. Think of your worst sin, your worst moment. I think all of us have a moment that was our worst. You know, something we look back and we're like, that was my worst moment. Imagine that and then every other thing you've done and then multiply that by every single person on the planet. 
everyone's worst day, everyone's worst sin, everyone's sin in total. Just, just imagine that cup just full to the top, just, just nasty, horrific. Every death, every murder, every horrible thing that has ever happened to anyone is just sitting in this cup. And, and, and imagine that that's what Jesus is asked to drink. It's put in front of him. It's like, have a sip of this, Jesus. That's horrific. Like, I don't even want to drink at camp when everyone mixes together those stuff at the tables, you know, when it's just like pour all the salsa and everything in. Like, I don't want to drink that. A cup full of everyone's horrific sins. And Jesus is asked to drink this. Does Jesus have any experience tasting a drop of that? No, he's sinless. He's perfection. This is literally like asking someone to drink the most revolting poison ever. What if, or what is being asked is for someone who is and has always been perfectly sinless to grab a hold of that massive cup of filthiness and drink all of it so that he becomes not just full of sin, but sin itself. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That's why he sweat blood. In Mark 10, there's this story of Jesus and his disciples. And basically what happens is um, James and John come to Jesus and they're asking him, Jesus, we want some of the glory. We, we want what you have, Jesus. So they say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he says to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. They're thinking at this point, when Je they're, what they're thinking is Jesus is gonna become the king of Israel. He's gonna defeat Rome. He's gonna stab the emperor. He's gonna come into a throne and he's gonna have thrones on his left side and right side for he's gonna be the king. And they're saying, can we be princes, Jesus? Can we be authority in your kingdom? Can we have political power? But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptized that I am baptized with? And they said to him, Lord, we're able. We can drink that cup. Here, this is what they think in the cup is in the cup. They think inside that cup is like riches, money, wealth, fame, success, that's what they think. They're looking at Jesus. Right now, at this point, Jesus is going around. He's doing miracles. He's healing people. Everyone loves him. Everyone adores him. And they're like, man, Lord, we, we want what you have. And Jesus is like, you don't understand what I have. I have a death sentence. I didn't come to this earth to become popular. I didn't come here to get riches. I came here to die. So if you want what I have, if you want what's in my cup, you have to realize it is a cup of suffering. And we have to realize this as Christians. If you follow Jesus, you are asking to share in his suffering. Jesus became sin. When he hung on that cross, he was no longer in communion with the Father because if so, the Father would be in communion with sin. He became what his Father hated for us. What did Jesus cry out on the cross? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus went through a moment in time where he felt as if God had forsaken him. He was not able to feel God's presence. Even though God never left him, he hung on the cross and he could not sense his father's spirit. He felt completely abandoned. He went through that 
so that you would never have to feel that way again, so that you would never be separated from God if you choose to hang on to Jesus. Why did Jesus drink the cup in the end if he found it so revolting? It's because as much as Jesus hates sin, he loves us even more. As much as he didn't want to be separated from his father, he wanted to obey his father even more. Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done, Father. Because he loves his Father and he loves us, he did these things. Guys, is that what you pray for? When you're going through trials, when you're going through suffering, which Jesus said for followers, we will go through suffering, but what are we promised? Are we promised that we'll never face trials on this earth? No, Jesus says, if you follow me, you will face trials, but here's the difference. If you don't follow Jesus, you'll also face trials. I've never met someone who's a non-Christian who's like, yes, my life has been perfect in every way. I've never gone through anything bad. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, we go through suffering. So the difference is someone who doesn't have Jesus doesn't have hope. The guarantee of following Jesus is not that if as soon as you become a Christian, all your problems go away. The guarantee of following Jesus is as you go through the problems that every human faces, you will have hope you will have an anchor of hope in Christ. You will know that one day there's a light at the end of the tunnel and Jesus comes back and his kingdom is perfect. No more crying, no more death, no more destruction, no more suffering, peace and perfection and glory and righteousness all around. So knowing that, what do you pray for when things are going wrong? When things are hard, when you're facing persecution, do you pray, Lord, get me out of this trial? Lord, just deliver me from this. Or if someone's coming against you, if someone's hurting you, Lord, strike them down. That's what I used to honestly pray uh, in the people in my life. Um, there's, yeah, this guy, uh, Michael, you guys know. I used to just get into it with this dude named Michael when I was a kid. God loved Michael. God loves me. God doesn't want for me to pray, Lord, strike Michael down. God wanted me to love my enemies. Are you loving your enemies now? Are you praying, God, strike them down? Are you praying what Jesus prayed? Lord, not what I want, but what you want. Because every trial you go through, you can either say, God, get me out of the trial, or you can say, God, do something in me during this trial. Make me into who you're making me to be during this trial. Are you praying to allow God to be in control? Two more questions as we close. How much distress, how much sadness does it, think seriously, how much sadness does it cause you when you think about being on your own apart from God? Have you thought about that? Maybe right now, some of you, in fact, I think there are some of you in this room who right now you are so content to live certain areas of your life out apart from God, to not invite him in, to be in control, to not invite him in to be Lord. You're so content. You've got your Sunday. That's where you come to church and you hear a Bible study and you feel, you know, you say, Lord, forgive me for my sins that I did last week and you feel a little bit less guilty. But right now you're not letting him be Lord of your life. If that's you today, just pray and say, God, I repent. I need you to be Lord in my life. I don't wanna be apart from you in any area of my life. I wanna invite you into every room of my heart. And finally, are you as troubled and sickened by your sin 
as Jesus was by what was inside that cup, the cup of suffering. So many times in my life, I just excuse sin. I would sin and I'd just be like, God's gonna forgive me. And I didn't think of how horrific sin is. But the blackness in my own heart. Guys, today, if you're in sin, which there's a great chance many of you are because you're human, if, you're, if there's sin in your life, whether it's lying to your parents about something or looking at things that you shouldn't or hanging out with people that you know your parents don't want you to right now or gossiping or, or lying or giving into anger or, or lust or, or whatever it is, disobedience, disrespect to your parents, just completely disrespecting them, whatever it is, you need to know that that sin is horrific. It hurts people. It destroys. It's not just some innocent little cute sin that God's gonna forgive us. No, we need to remember that every sin that you commit hung with Christ on the cross. Every sin that I committed made the nails in his hands and feet heavier and more painful. Every sin that you and I committed, you might think, it's so small. It's just one drop of Jesus' blood. All of our sins together, that's, that's a lot of blood. If you're here today, I just want to encourage you. Repent. Repentance, what it means is it's turning away from your sin. It's completely turning around and going the other direction. Why does Jesus tell us to do that? Is it because he wants to be controlling Jesus is in control. What's the point of this message? Just to not have any free will and to not think through anything? No, no. It's to put yourself in the place of the arms of a loving father who wants to keep you away from sin. Not because he's bossy, but because sin is poison. And you're his child and he wants to protect his children. And I've found in my own life that as I give Jesus control, I find more freedom than I had before. Seriously, I don't feel restricted. I feel so much better when I give Jesus control. I feel so much more joy, so much more just pleasure in my life, so much more just excitement and fun when I allow Jesus to be in control. The places he leads me, the things that he inspires me to do are so much more fulfilling than when I just live for myself. And I just wanna close with just this reminder for any of you guys here today who are going through trials, Remember this awesome line from this song by Phil Wickham. If you guys remember his song, Safe in His Arms. He says, you will be safe in his arms. The hands that hold the world are holding your heart. This is the promise he made. He will be with you always. When everything is falling apart, you will be safe in his arms. Lord, we thank you that you love us and you care about us. We thank you, God, that you are in control God, so many times in our life, it feels like things are falling apart. So many times it feels like everything is crumbling around. And God, we mess up and we make mistakes. God, thank you that you are in control, always. Thank you, God, that you are with us forever. Thank you, God, that you are so powerful that you can knock down 600 soldiers with your word. You can speak light and creation into existence with the sound of your voice. And God, that voice wants to speak to our heart. That voice, as we open up the Bible, as we pray, as we listen to Bible studies, 
as we talk to you, that voice speaks to our heart. God, we don't deserve that, but you give us your voice and you speak to us. You've spoken to us this morning. You've spoken to me. Even as I teach on this stage, you've spoken things to me. God, we don't deserve that. We're so thankful. As we go forth today, God, I pray that you would just help us to realize that you're in control. And for anyone here who's not giving control to the Lord, Jesus, inspire them to surrender. Whatever it is in their life they're not giving to you, inspire them to surrender it. In your name, amen.